TED Audio Collective. This TED Talk features author and professor of African American Studies, David Eichard, recorded live at TEDx Nashville 2018. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Global Fabric, brought to you by BT. Available in over 200 countries and direct, high-bandwidth connectivity to over 700 data centers worldwide, Global Fabric provides a zero-trust journey, DDoS detection, and mitigation embedded as standard, so you can secure your complex multi-cloud ecosystem without impacting performance. Baseline monitor and manage your carbon footprint across your entire ecosystem with our dedicated carbon network dashboard. Plus, the Global Fabric network is powered by one. 100% renewable energy. Master the multi-cloud with Global Fabric. Future-proof and secure your connectivity on a network that evolves with you. To learn how BT's Global Fabric can transform your organization's connectivity, head to bt.com slash global fabric. I am the proud father of two beautiful children, Elijah, 15, and Octavia, 12. When Elijah was in the fourth grade, he came to me, came home from school, bubbling over with excitement about what he had learned that day about African-American history. Now, I'm an African-American cultural studies professor, and so as you can imagine, African-American culture is kind of serious around my home, so I was very proud that my son was excited about what he had learned that day in school. So I said, well, what would you learn? He said, I learned about Rosa Parks. I said, okay, what did you learn about Rosa Parks? He said, I learned that Rosa Parks was this frail old black woman in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama, and she sat down on this bus, and she had tired feet, and when the bus driver told her to give up her seat to a white patron, she refused because she had tired feet, and it had been a long day, and she was tired of oppression. And she didn't give up her seat. And she marched with Martin Luther King, and she believed in nonviolence. And I guess he must have looked at my face and saw that I was a little less than impressed by his um, history lesson. And, and so he stopped, and he's like, Dad, what's wrong? What, what, what did I get wrong? I said, son, you didn't get anything wrong, but I think your teacher got a whole lot of things wrong. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, Rosa Parks was not tired. Uh, She was not old. Uh, 
Um, and she certainly didn't have tired feet. He said, what? I said, yes. Rosa Parks was only 42 years old. Yeah, you're shocked, right? Never heard that. Rosa Parks was only 42 years old. She had only worked six hours that day, and she was a seamstress, and her feet were just fine. (laughs) The only thing that she was tired of was she was tired of inequality. She was tired of oppression. And my son said, well, why would my teacher, you know, tell me this thing? You know, this is, this is confusing for me because he, he, he loved this teacher. And she was, a, she was a good teacher, a youngish, you know, 20-something white woman, really, really smart, pushed him. So I liked her as well. But he was confused. Why would she tell me this, he said. He said, Dad, tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more about Rosa Parks. And I said, son, I'll do you, I'll do you one better. He was like, what? I said, I'm going to buy her autobiography, and I'm going to let you read it yourself. (laughs) So as you can imagine, Elijah wasn't too excited about this new lengthy homework assignment that his dad had just given him, but he, he took it in stride. And he came back after he had read it, and he was excited about what he had learned. He said, Dad, he said, not only was Rosa Parks not into, initially into nonviolence, she said, but Rosa Parks' grandfather, who basically raised her and was light enough to pass as white, used to walk around town with his gun in his holster, and people knew that if you messed with Mr. Parks' children or grandchildren, he would put a cap in your proverbial bottom. Right? He was not someone to mess with. And he said, I also learned that Rosa Parks married a man in Raymond who was a lot like her grandfather. Right? He would organize, he, or, he, was, he was a civil rights activist, he would organize um, uh, events, and um, sometimes the events would be at Rosa Parks' home, and one time Rosa Parks remarked that there were so many guns on the table because they were prepared for somebody to come busting into the door that they were prepared for whatever was going to go down. The Rosa Parks said there were so many guns on the table that I forgot to even offer them coffee or food. Right? This is who Rosa Parks was. And in fact, Rosa Parks, when she was sitting um, on that bus that day, waiting for those police officers to arrive and not knowing what was going to happen to her, She was not thinking about Martin Luther King, who she barely knew. She was not thinking about nonviolence or Gandhi. She was thinking about her grandfather, her gun-toting, take-no-mess grandfather. grandfather. That's who Rosa Parks was thinking about. And my son was mesmerized by Rosa Parks. And I was proud of him to see this excitement. But then I still had a problem because I still had to go to a school and address the issue with his teacher, because I didn't want her to continue to teach the kids, obviously, false history. So I'm agonizing over this, primarily because I understand as an African-American man that whenever you talk to whites about racism or anything that's racially sensitive, there's usually going to be a challenge. This is what uh, sociologist, white sociologist Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. She argues that, in fact, because whites have so little experience being challenged about their white privilege that whenever even the most minute challenge is brought before them, they usually cry, get angry, or run. (laughs) 
and I have experienced them all. And so when um, I was contemplating uh, confronting his teacher, I wasn't, wasn't happy about it, but I was like, this is a necessary evil of being a black parent trying to raise self-actualized black children. So I called Elijah to me, and I said, Elijah, I'm going to tell your teacher you know, I'm going to set up an appointment with your teacher and try and correct this and maybe your principal. Uh, what do you think? And Elijah said, Dad, I, I have a better idea. And I said, really, what's your idea? He said, we have a public speaking assignment, and why don't I use that public speaking assignment to talk about debunking the myths of Rosa Parks? And I was like, well, well that is a good idea. So Elijah goes to school, he does his presentation, he comes back home, and I can see something positive happen. I said, well, what happened, son? He said, well, later on in that day, the teacher pulled me aside, and she apologized to me for giving that misinformation. And then something else miraculous happened the next day. She actually taught a new lesson on Rosa Parks filling in the gaps that she had left and correcting the mistakes that she made. And I was so, so proud of my son. But then I thought about it, and I got angry, and I got real angry. Why? Why would I get angry? Because my nine-year-old son had to educate his teacher about his history had to educate his teacher about his own humanity. He's nine years old. He should be thinking about basketball or soccer or, right, the latest movie. He should not be thinking about having to take the responsibility of educating his teacher, his, his, his students, right, about himself, about his history. That was the burden that I carried. That was a burden that my parents carried and generations before them carried. And now I was seeing my son take on that burden too. You see, that's why Rosa Parks wrote her autobiography. Because during her lifetime, if you can imagine, you do this, you, you do this amazing thing. You're alive and you're talking about this, your, your civil rights activism And a story emerges in which somebody is telling the world that you were old and you had tired feet and you just were an accidental activist. Not that you had been an activist by then for 20 years. Not that the boycott had been planned for months. Not that you were not even the first or the second or even the third woman to be arrested for doing that. Right? You become an accidental activist. During the year little over a year that the boycott lasted. There were over four church bombings. Martin Luther King's house was bombed twice. Other civil rights leaders' houses were bombed in Birmingham. Rosa Parks' husband slept at night with a shotgun because they would get constant death threats. In fact, Rosa Parks' mother lived with them, and sometimes she would stay on the phone for hours so that, somebody, so that nobody would call in with death threats because it was constant and persistent. In fact, there was so much tension. There was so much pressure. There was so much terrorism that Rosa Parks and her husband, they lost their jobs, and they became unemployable and eventually had to leave and move out of the South. This is a civil rights reality that Rosa Parks wanted to make 
sure that people understood. So you say, well, well David, um, what does that have to do with me? I'm, I'm a well-meaning person. I didn't own slaves. You know, I'm not trying to whitewash history. I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Let me tell you what it has to do with you, and I'll tell it to you by telling you a story about a professor of mine, white professor, when I was in graduate school, who was brilliant, brilliant individual. We'll call him Fred. And Fred was writing this history of the civil rights movement, but he was writing specifically about a moment that happened to him in North Carolina when this white man shot this black man in cold blood in a wide open space and was never convicted. And so it was this great book, and he called together a couple of his professor friends, and he called me to have to read a draft of it before final submission. And I was flattered that he called me. I was only a graduate student then, and I was kind of feeling, you know, feeling myself a little bit. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting around amongst intellectuals, and I read the draft of uh, the book. And there's a moment in the book that struck me as being deeply problematic. And so I said, Fred, as we were sitting around talking about this draft, I said, Fred, I got a real problem with this moment that you talk about your maid in your book. And he said, I could see Fred get a little, you know, got a little, <clears throat> up, you know, he's got a little tight, as we say. And he said, what do you mean? That was, that's a great story. I, I, that was a, you know, it happened just like I said. I said, mm, can I give you another scenario? Now, what's the story? It was 1968. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. His maid, domestic, we'll call her Maybelle, was in the kitchen. Little Fred is eight years old. Little Fred comes into the kitchen. And Maybelle, who he's, all, who he's only seen as smiling and helpful and happy, is bent over the sink, and she's crying. And she's sobbing inconsolably. And little Fred comes over to her and says, Maybelle, what is wrong? And Maybelle turns and she says, they killed him. They killed our leader. They killed Martin Luther King. He's dead. They are monsters. And little Fred says, it'll be okay, Maybelle. It'll be okay. It'll it'll be okay. And she looked at him. She says, no, it's not going to be okay. Did you, did you not hear what I just said? They killed Martin Luther King. And Fred, son of a preacher, he looks up at Maybell and he says, but Maybell, didn't Jesus die on the cross for our sins? Wasn't that a good outcome? Maybe this will be a good outcome. Maybe the death of Martin Luther King will lead to a good outcome. And as Fred tells the story, he says that maybe I'll put her hand over her mouth. She reached down and she gave little Fred a hug. And then she reached into the icebox and took out a couple Pepsis. Gave him some Pepsis and sent him on his way to play with his siblings. And he said, this was proof that even in the most harrowing times of race struggle, that two people could come together across racial lines and find human commonality along the lines of love and affection. And I said, Fred, that is some BS. (laughs) Fred was, he he said, 
Fred was like, but, but I don't understand, David. I, I, I'm really, I, that, that's, that's the story. I said, Fred, let me ask you a question. I said, um, you were in North Carolina, 1968. If Maybell would have went to her community, you were eight years old, what do you think the eight-year-old African-American children were calling her? Do you think they were calling her by her first name? No, they called her Miss Maybell, or they called her Miss Johnson, or they called her Auntie Johnson. They would have never dared call her by her first name because that would have been the height of disrespect. And yet you were calling her by her first name every single day that she worked, and you never thought about it. I said, let me ask you another question. Was Maybell married? Did she have children? What church did she go to? What was her favorite dessert? Fred could not answer any of those questions. I said, Fred, this story is not about Maybelle. This story is about you. I said, this story made you feel good, but this story is not about Maybelle. The reality is, what probably happened was Maybelle was crying, which was not something she customarily did. So she was letting her guard down. And you came into the kitchen and you caught her at a weak moment where she was letting her guard down. And see, because you thought of yourself as just like one of her children, you didn't recognize that you were, in fact, the child of her employer. And she found herself yelling at you. And then she caught herself realizing that if I'm yelling at him and he goes back and he tells his dad or he tells mom, I could lose my job. And so she tempered herself and she ended up, even though she needed consoling, she ended up consoling you and sending you on your way perhaps so she could finish mourning in peace. And Fred was stunned. And he realized that he had actually misread that moment. And see, this is what they did to Rosa Parks, because it's a lot easier to digest an old grandmother with tired feet who doesn't stand up because she wants to fight for inequality, but because her feet and her back are tired and she's worked all day. See, grandmothers, old grandmothers are not scary, but young, radical black women who don't take any stuff from anybody are very scary, who stand up to power and are willing to die for that. Those are not the kind of people that make us comfortable. So you say, what do you want me to do, David? I don't know what to do. Well, what I would say to you is, there was a time in which if you were Jewish, you were not white. If you were Italian, you were not white. If you were Irish, you were not white in this country. It took a while before the Irish, the Jews, and the Italians became white, right? There was a time in which you were othered, when you were the people on the outside. Toni Morrison said, if in order for you to be tall, I have to be on my knees, you have a serious problem. She says, white America has a serious, serious problem. To be honest, I don't know if race relations will improve in America. But I know that if they will improve, we have to take these challenges on head on. The future of my children depends on it. The future of my children's children depends on it. And whether you know it or not, the future of your children and your children's children depends on it too. Thank you.